Some of you know Mark Twain, author of Huckleberry Finn. Tom Sawyer uh, was also the author of a little-known book called The Prince and the Pauper. I know there have been some movies made about this, but basically The Prince and the Pauper was the story of Prince Edward and uh, a young boy by the name of Tom Canty who was a pauper, and they meet each other, and they look identical. And both of them aren't very happy with their lot in life, and so they decide to switch places. The prince becomes a pauper, and the pauper becomes the prince. Uh, In the story, Mark Twain writes, however, what happens is that uh, the king dies, which is Edward's dad. And so Edward, realizing this, goes back to the palace and has to try to convince people that he's the rightful heir to the throne, that he's really the next king. And some people are looking at him and have a hard time believing this because here is a boy dressed in rags. Some people believe him. Some people don't. Now that story reminds me a lot actually of Christmas and the responses people had towards Jesus both back then and still now today. If you haven't been with us, we are in a series leading up to Christmas Eve called There is a King. And if you like to follow along on the message notes, here's what we've been saying about that. If you're following, there is a king who changes everything. That might sound a little bit extreme, changes everything, but it's not. We have been learning that Christmas is nothing less than the claim that like Prince Edward, whether people recognize him or not, Jesus Christ is the king of glory and he came to change everything. Like Edward, he was dressed in rags. He came in poverty and obscurity and humility as a baby in a stable. And also, like Edward, people responded and reacted to him very differently. Some believed and some didn't. In fact, if you're following, here's what I'd like to do with you this morning. I'm going to look at this on your notes. The coming of this king evokes three reactions. In the story we're going to look at, three reactions we see. My contention is that these are still the three reactions we most see in our world today. So take your Bibles and turn them to Matthew chapter 2 with me. We want to be first-handers in God's Word here at Cherry Hills, so hopefully you brought your Bible. But if you didn't, we always want to make some available uh, for you in the seat in front of you. There are some black Bibles that should be there. You can find this on page 676, Matthew 2, starting in in verse 1. Excuse me. We are going to again look at a familiar passage. I know many of you have heard this again and again and again. But today we're going to look at it, like I said, from this angle of what are the reactions people have towards Jesus, both back then and now. We're going to look at Herod. We're going to look at the reaction of the religious leaders. And we're going to look at the reaction of the Magi or the wise men. So before we do that, once again, can we bow and uh, just ask the Lord to be the one who teaches us today? God, I have words to say, but only you can speak them into our hearts. I acknowledge this. We all acknowledge this in this room. And what that takes is a partnership. It takes us welcoming you, opening our hearts and our eyes and our ears to receive what you would have for us this morning. So if we haven't already done that, I pray that we would make space for you in this time. And we invite you to speak to us in a powerful way. Amen. Well, let's first talk about the reaction of Herod. What do you all know about King Herod? He was uh, known as Herod the Great, which, by the way, is a name many people believe he actually gave himself. That tells us some stuff. Herod was born in 73 B.C. He was named the King of Judea, which is a part of Israel, right, by the Romans in 40 B.C. One of the things Herod is actually known for in a good way is some of the incredible building initiatives he, he began in Israel. In fact, the reconstructing the second temple, he, he began to expand that during his time. Now that was good, but what wasn't so good was Herod's personality. 
In fact, you might want to call him Herod the not-so-great when it came to personality because he was as brutal of a ruler as there ever was. History tells us at an early age his father, also a politician, was murdered. And at that time, something snapped in this boy's life. He, too, was on the track of becoming a politician, and he knew that he was never going to let what happened to his father happen to him. So he became, like I said, one of the most brutal rulers in all of history. He would do anything to keep his power. Herod would kill for power, bribe for power, steal for power, cheat for power. He would even marry for power. And if there was a chance that somebody was going to infringe on his power, what do you think Herod did? He had them exterminated well before they could ever even have that chance. This paranoia led to the death of three of his sons by his own hand. It even led to the death of his own wife. So obsessed was he with power. Now, you think that's bad? That's pretty bad. It gets even worse. One week before Herod was going to die, he was laying on his deathbed. He knew that his time had come. You know what he did? He had 70 religious and political leaders arrested and thrown into prison. And his command was that on the day he died, because he knew nobody was going to cry over his death, that those people be murdered, 70 people be murdered. So at least there would be tears on the day Herod the Great died. Thankfully, they didn't carry out his order. If you think that's bad, it gets even worse. That leads us actually to our passage this morning, which is Matthew chapter 2. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 1, and the reaction of Herod to the coming of this king. Verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? By the way, can we pause here? Notice the title these Magi give to Jesus, the king of the Jews. I find two things interesting about that. First of all, these were Gentiles. And if you were here during our Galatians series, what's a Gentile? Anybody who's not? And yet they are referring to him as the king of the Jews. The second thing I think is interesting is this title for Jesus isn't used again in his life until the very end of Matthew's gospel when another Gentile, Pontius Pilate, puts a plaque over his cross that reads, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now how do you think the current king of the Jews is going to react to hearing about a newborn king of the Jews? You think this is going to go over well for what you know about Herod so far? Uh, The wise men have no clue. They're about to stir up a hornet's nest. Verse 2, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now read Herod's reaction out loud with me on your notes in verse 3. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Huh. Why was Herod disturbed? If you're following there, here's his reaction. Because the coming of Jesus threatened Herod's power. The coming of Jesus threatened Herod's power. As we have learned, Herod would do anything, right? To make sure that he held all the power in his life. Now, some have asked the question, why is all Jerusalem disturbed too? That doesn't make any sense. Oh, it makes sense. You know the old saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? The the court would know, like, if Herod ain't happy, bad things are about to happen. And that's exactly the case. Skip down to verse 7. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right. He is doing what he is so good at doing. He is scheming. 
right? And he is lying to these magi. He's plotting, and he basically says, hey, look, if you find this new king of the Jews, I want to know about it because I want to go and worship them. But we know from the rest of the story, if you've ever read Matthew, that was never Herod's intention. In fact, if you got your Bible there, skip just down to chapter 2, verse 16, and look at Herod's reaction. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, we'll learn about that later, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. That's bad. So brutal. So power-hungry was this king that after the Magi are warned in a dream not to tell Herod, not to return to Herod, just to protect his power. He has all the babies that would have been around that age when Jesus was born, slaughtered in the town of Bethlehem. Nobody was going to mess with his throne, his kingdom, his power, his influence. So his first instinct is to destroy Jesus. Herod let his power get to him, and he saw Jesus as a threat. Now, I'll just pause here and ask you. That's a good history lesson. Are there still people today who are disturbed by the coming of this king? Absolutely. And they're disturbed for the very same reason. They see Jesus as a threat to their lives. I mean, how could you not? If Jesus claims to be a king, which is what we are saying, then that means he demands ultimate authority in our lives. And some of us, if we're just being honest, we don't want to give them that authority. We kind of like the power. You see some of those pictures there on your uh, message notes. I know you're really excited uh, about this uh, part of the service here. But I, I was just thinking this week of an easy way to illustrate each of these three people's reaction. So here we have Herod, and we've been talking about how Jesus' claim is that there's a king. He's the king. Of glory, And so what I do, I would draw a little throne inside of your little circle. And we want to picture the reaction to the coming of this king in each of these three uh, examples. So what is Herod's reaction? Well, Herod, I'll define him with an S, which is self. He sits on the throne. He sits on the throne of his life. Where does Jesus fit, do you think, in this entire circle? He ain't even in the circle. He wants him as far away from him as possible possible. Jesus is a threat to Herod's life, to his power. And so Herod is going to do everything, everything to make sure that this king does not have any dominion in his life. Herod is the ultimate illustration in many ways of what I would call self-worship, pride, the first and worst of all sins, the moment when Adam and Eve reached for that apple. What were they saying? I want to be king of my own life. I want to sit on the throne of my own life. I want to be king. I want to be the king here. I think many of us can relate to that circle. Many of us like the idea of sitting on the thrones ourselves. We like the power. And by doing that, we want to get rid of Jesus. Now, how does that actually happen? I mean, I'm, I'm talking in... Uh, Abstracts. What does that actually look like? Well, here's the main way it looks like is I will be the determiner of what is right and wrong. I will be the moral compass, right? I will date who I want to date. Jesus, get, get out of here. I will marry who I want to marry. I will use my resources the way I want to use my resources. I could go on and on and on. I sit on the throne of my life. I will decide 
what it is I do and how it is I live. That's the first reaction. And like Frank Sinatra at the end of his life, we can sing, I did it my way. I sat on that throne because I was threatened. I was threatened that I might lose my power, that I might lose my kingdom. The second reaction to the coming of the king is found in a group called the religious leaders that I said there. What do we know about the religious leaders? They're called the chief priests and teachers of the law in the scripture here. Well, their uh, description pretty much sums it up. These were the experts in scripture. They spent their life memorizing, learning, knowing everything they could learn to know about what was in that Bible. They made sure to meticulously live and follow out all of the rules that God had given the people of Israel. I mean, they knew the scripture, knowing and keeping the law was their highest priority in life. So of any group that you think would be excited about the coming of this promised king, it would be the religious leaders, right? They know the promise. God promised David he would send a king. But look at their reaction, starting in verse 4. When he called, Herod called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now read verse 5 out loud with me on your notes. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. What prophet? Well, the prophet Micah. What did Micah say? Well, they know exactly what he said. They quote him in verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's incredible. They got the Bible memorized. They know exactly where this king is going to come from. So now don't look at your Bible. Wouldn't you expect that verse 7, I mean, we just read verse 6. They know where the king is coming from. Wouldn't you expect that verse 7 would now say something like, the religious leaders immediately made their way to Bethlehem in anticipation of this long-awaited king. You can look. Does it say anything like that? You would think, of all groups, this would be a group that would be like, I got to go check this thing out. Well, maybe Bethlehem. It's six miles away. It's like an hour and a half, two-hour walk to see the king that they knew was coming. They could quote the very verse where he would be born. And yet there's nothing else in this story stated about their reaction to the coming of Jesus. No visit, no excitement. If you're following, the reaction of the religious leaders is they ignore the king's coming. They ignore the king's coming. This king makes no difference to them. Now it's interesting, they're not threatened by Jesus coming like Herod was, well, at least not yet. If you read the rest of the Gospels, do they start getting a little bit threatened? Anytime somebody makes a claim to the throne, you start to get threatened. They start to get threatened, but not right now. Right now, they just could care less. They're indifferent to this king's coming. They completely disregard Jesus because they're a little bit too into their temple rituals and their discussions of the law. That's what's important to them. Jesus means nothing to them. Now, isn't this amazing? Here are the people who knew all the right verses. I mean, they went to church at least three out of four Sundays. They even tithed. They knew the scripture. But they don't go. They don't do anything. Can that be a reaction some of us still have towards this king today? I think a lot of times in the church, especially, 
See, I, I would put it this way. It's possible to know about God, but not know God. So how, how would we illustrate the religious leader's reaction to Jesus? I, I would do it this way. There's still a claim to a throne. Who sits on the throne in their lives? They still do. But here's the thing. Jesus is in the circle. They know about him. They know who he is. They know where he was going to come from. They know what his claims were. And yet they are still choosing to sit on the throne. I'll ask you, is it possible for us to be super religious but be oblivious to the thing that most matters? Jesus spoke about this often. One of the verses, you know, that's most uh, eye-opening for me is Matthew 7 when Jesus would say this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? We did religious stuff, Jesus. I mean, we did some stuff. Then Jesus will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These religious leaders thought knowing about Jesus was enough. They did stuff. They did religious stuff. They did good stuff. They were moral. They knew the law. They had it memorized. They tithed. They served. But they missed the whole point of this king's coming. Jesus didn't come so we could know more about him. He came so we could know him. So that we could really know him. So often in my life, I know about Jesus and I live up here. And what he really wants is right here. He wants me to know him. And he wants to know me. I like to think, you know, if I was one of the religious leaders back then, I would have dropped everything. And I'd have made my way to Bethlehem. I would have even taken a personal day, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) But sometimes I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Becoming a Christian isn't about what you do. It's about who you know. It's about knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and making him the one desire of your life. We've been saying there's a king and it changes everything. If it hasn't, if it hasn't, maybe it's because I don't really know him. I know about him and it hasn't changed a whole lot. I still sit on the throne. Knowing him, however, will change everything. You know, you can't live in our country right now Probably, and not have at least had some access to the knowledge of the gospel. We live in the like most amazing era ever where information is just constantly at our fingertips. I'm guessing that's why some of the statistics say what they say about our country. You know, yeah, I believe in God. So many people say uh, they believe in God, and what they're saying is, I know about God. My question would be, do you know him? Do you really know him in a personal way? The religious leaders missed it. It wasn't just to know about God. It was so that they could know him. It's not about information. It's about transformation. That's the second reaction. The third reaction to the birth of this king is found in the magi, or wise men, as we most commonly call them. What do we know about the magi? Well, the term magi itself suggests that these were astrologers of some sort. They looked to the stars. They looked to the sky, and they were able to interpret signs of the times, and they were able to interpret dreams. Well, that obviously makes sense, right? Right? 
After all, they've been following this star that they believed was an indication of an enormous event that happened in Israel, the birth of a king. Now, we don't know exactly where they came from. The Bible just says they came from the east. Tradition says they were probably not kings, as we like to sing. They were definitely of high authority, however. Most likely they were from, some of you geography buffs, from Parthia, which is where ancient Babylon was located. Now, I think this is kind of cool. This makes so much sense to me, because if you read the book of Daniel, Daniel was a captive in Babylon, right? And he speaks of Magi. He speaks of this group of people who interpreted dreams and signs of the time. Now, really, the main thing I want us to understand, though, is if they really did come from Parthia, that means they traveled thousands of miles. It took them years to come to Bethlehem. Let's look at their response when they finally arrive in verse 9. After they had heard the king, Herod, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, read the rest of verse 11 and their reaction with me there on your notes. It says, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If you're following, the reaction of the Magi to this king's coming was one of adoring worship. Worship. As opposed to Herod, who was threatened. As opposed to the religious leaders, who were just too busy. These Gentiles, the people who would least likely know, travel thousands of miles, and they offer this newborn king their worship. The word worship, we use it a lot in church. It just means ascribing ultimate worth to someone or something. And here's what you need to know about worship. We all worship something. We all ascribe ultimate worth to someone or something. Let me just prove it to you. Who did Herod worship? Himself. He worshiped his power. He ascribed ultimate worth to being in power, to sitting on the throne of his life. Who did the religious leaders or what did the religious leaders worship? They worshiped their knowledge. They just thought if they could learn more and more about God, somehow that made them better and more acceptable to him. Only the Magi, only the Magi worship Jesus Christ. So how would we draw that? Pretty simple. Of all the groups, this is the only group who lets Jesus sit on the throne and they sit at his feet. They sit at his feet. I love in this short passage, real quickly, I want to just show you a pattern of worship we learned from the Magi. I just saw this, you know, this week. Uh, there's not a lot, of, a lot of text here. There's only like two verses about the Magi. But in their reaction, we see a pattern of worship ourselves. We see what this circle can really look like. Number one, they bowed. Right? As soon as they come into the house, what do they do? They bow. Now, what does it mean for you to bow before someone? It means you're acknowledging you are in the presence of someone who is superior to you. So, so they bow. They are acknowledging that they are in the presence of someone superior. What does it take for someone to bow? It takes humility. It takes humility, right? It takes humble of, humbleness of spirit to say, I recognize in this person that they are better and more superior than I am. 
So if you're following there, here's the first thing about worship. Worship of this king starts with humility. We must recognize who Jesus is in light of who we are. What's the difference between Herod and the religious leaders and these magi? Only the magi are willing to humble themselves. Humble themselves before this king and acknowledge his authority in their lives. Scripture is very clear that the posture of humility is the only way one comes to God. I mean, doesn't it take humility to recognize, I am sitting on a throne in my life, God, and I need a Savior to come and forgive me of my sin and make me clean again. It takes humility to bow before him and recognize only he has the power in life to do that. Second, they gave. They gave. This would have been a traditional thing that Eastern um, people would have done during this time. If you're approaching a superior, you better bring a gift. Gifts show honor. They showed respect. These magi give these meaningful, significant gifts. There's a lot of been made about these gifts throughout the past. And I, I actually believe they have some incredible meaning. There's no accident. They just threw together, oh, let's just get together whatever we could. These gifts had incredible meaning. Gold, number one. Gold was the gift for a king, right? Seneca, who was a Roman philosopher, says that in Parthia, where we think the magi were from, the custom was you could never approach a king without some sort of a gift. And what is the gift fit for a king? The king of all metals, gold. So these magi, by bringing him gold, are recognizing his kingship. Second, they bring him frankincense. Frankincense is a glittering, odorous gum. It's obtained by making incisions in different trees and gathering that uh, together. It was used as an incense. They would burn it for temple worship. And so check this out. What, who, would, uh, who would a gift of incense be good for? A priest. All right? What's the role of a priest? A priest's role was to open the way between God and men. God and men and women, right? And we are told in Hebrews that Jesus Christ became our great high priest and forever because of his sacrifice, he has opened the way for us and him. They bring him frankincense. Myrrh is also something that comes from trees. It was a valued spice. You know what it was used for? Embalming the dead. They would wrap up the body, cover them with this spice, myrrh. Even in the beginning of his life, we learn exactly why this king came. He came to die so that we may have life. The Magi brought the best gifts they could bring for Jesus. And there's something we learn here, friends. If you're on your notes, worship is giving God our best. Not 50%, not 75%, 100%. It's acknowledging who he is and giving him our best. So, I mean, what are some examples? Well, when we enter into this place on a Sunday morning, what are we bringing? Am I prepared to encounter the presence of the living God? Am I willing to give him my best? Do I stand up during the songs and kind of half-heartedly, or am I giving him my best? As we open God's word, am am I giving him my best? Am I focused, paying attention, believing that he wants to speak to me even now? I think about some of the excuses I've made in my life. Well, I don't know if I can get up that early to be with God. Is he not worth an extra half hour? 
to be in prayer, to be in his word with him, to give him the best part of my day, the first part of my day, to be with God? What about our resources? We are called to be stewards of all God's given us our time, our relationships, our money. Am I giving him what he deserves my best? The the Magi give a great example to us here. Number three, the third aspect of worship is they obeyed. We never finished the story, so look at the end here, verse 12. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. It's just a throw-in verse, but basically, remember, they were supposed to go tell Herod where this newborn king was so he could come worship, but in a dream implied from the Lord, they're told not to go back, and so what do they do? They obey. They listen to God. Today, we think of worship as what we do when we sing songs on Sunday morning, yeah? That's when we worship. No, no, no. Worship is all about my whole life. It's about what happens right after we leave this church. It's about what happens on Wednesday at 5 p.m. in my home. Worship, as some have said, if you're following there, is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. And ultimately, that means submitting in obedience to the authority of God and his word. This is worship. Letting him sit on the throne. And not following what he says out of fear or out of ritual, but out of love and out of adoration. It's giving Jesus the throne of my life. So let me just get straight to it as we close. Which illustration is the best picture of you this Christmas? Be honest. We've all had times when we've been all three, probably, some of us. But are you like Herod this Christmas, sitting on the throne of your life, and you know it, you have pushed Jesus Christ aside. You have become the decision maker of how you're going to run your life. You're the boss. Or are you like the religious leaders? You grow up in the church. You know all about these stories. You know a lot about the Bible. You even had flannel graphs and all that stuff. But deep down, if you were to let God really examine you, you know that you're still sitting on the throne. You know you know a lot about him, but you don't really know him. Or are you like these magi who willingly submitted themselves in worship to the king? They gave him the throne of their lives in worship. Let me put it this way. If you're following there, who is sitting on the throne as king in my life? So listen, in many ways, these two are the same things. We're told in scriptures that at the end of all things, the king of glory, Jesus Christ, will be sitting on his throne. And all people, whatever reaction they have towards him, will come before his throne. And Jesus is going to separate those who made this their reaction to him, submitted their lives into his authority. He will separate them from those who didn't want him. You see, the thing about our God, the thing about Jesus is that he'll never force himself on us. He will never demand kingship. Kings demand authority, don't they? Have you ever read about kings? They demand authority, but not our king. He invites us. He invites us into a personal relationship, and we make the decision whether we're going to put him on the throne of our lives or not. So what is it for you this Christmas? What is it for you? Will you let him be the king of your life and worship him? in the way he deserves? Let's pray.
Lord, I can see myself in all three of these. So in this time now, we have to reflect and pray as the band comes and they're going to lead us in a meditative song. We pray that we'll take this seriously and really ask the question right now, this Christmas, who is sitting on the throne of my life and what do I need to do? What do I need to do if really you're the one who needs to be sitting there? There are some here who want to push you away. I ask that you wouldn't let them do that. There are others here who think just because they know about you, that's all it is. Lord, I pray you would reveal your heart to them. And there are others of us, though we don't do it perfectly, we seek to let you be king and ruler. Show us the areas where we may not be doing that fully today. And as we come to you now in these closing times, we want to bring an offering of worship. We want to bring an offering of worship to you. We want to bow and show our humbleness. We want to give our best. And we want to live lives that are pleasing to you. For your sake and for your name, amen.